So again, happy Memorial Day, everyone. This is, of course, the beginning of the summer season for us Americans, a time of barbecues, baseball, and at least in theory, better weather. <laughs> but it is also a time to meditate on the service and sacrifice of our nation's military. And while we traditionally, as a nation, have done a wonderful job of supporting our troops while deployed, we're not nearly as good at caring for them once they return home. Today, there are over two million people serving in our nation's military, neither active duty or reserve royals. And for reference, there are only about a couple hundred thousand self-identified Unitarian Universalists in America. And since the Afghanistan and Iraq war started a decade and a half ago now, we have lost over 6,000 of our military personnel to violent deaths of combat, and nearly t 10 times that number have been physically injured. Countless others have been hurt irreparably by war, incurring psychological injuries that will follow them perhaps the rest of their lives. And maybe greater than any tragedy met on the battlefield is the brutal reality that our former military face when returning to society. Now, our recognition of the service of our military siblings of this country is an appropriately patriotic exploration into valor, honor, and sacrifice. And on this day, we acknowledge and celebrate those people who lost their lives in defense of this country of ours, and rightfully sing the praises of those who have sacrificed so much for our freedom and security. So I'd like to begin by taking a moment to thank those among us who have served for the U.S. military in some capacity. Would all those active duty reservists, veterans, and former military stand or raise their hands to be recognized? Do you have any with us today? Yeah. <clears throat> I know I can speak for all of us here in saying thank you. We're proud of you and we are grateful for your service. And now, if you've ever been married to, parent, sibling, or child of a military person, please stand or raise your hand to be recognized. Thank you. Your dedication and service is second only to your loved one. And we know that the effects of conflict have long and wide reverberations, and that the true battles are often fought months or years after the individual service has ended. Everyone, a round of applause for supporting you. Now, as an adult, I came to appreciate the work of our military personnel and, and acknowledge the absolute abhorrent treatment many receive when no longer in service. It is a sad fact that more veterans and service members have died every year from suicide than have been killed total in all the conflicts since September 11th. It's also a devastating fact that veterans comprise the largest percentage of our homeless population annually. 
For a country so seemingly committed to our military, indeed, we spend more than half of the federal discretionary budget on military. We do a terrible job of caring for those who've served us. Now compound this with our Unitarian Universalist leanings towards peace, nonviolence, and pacifism, you use tend to do an even worse job than the rest of society when it comes to serving those who serve and supporting our millions upon millions of military families. We often point to the fact that wars are rarely just, that more often than not they are fueled by political and economic ambitions rather than to address humanitarian needs. We know that war disproportionately affects the poor and the marginalized, and that the aftermath of war can be just as bad or worse than the actual violence for those displaced by conflict, as we see today in the millions upon millions of refugees and asylum seekers around the world. Here and elsewhere, the most vulnerable in society supply the vast majority of the personnel necessary to maintain a military presence. And these most vulnerable in society often become the most vulnerable on the battlefield. We know also that there are untold and rarely recognized environmental implications of warfare, such as the unchecked pollution of Iraqi oil fields, which literally burned for years after the bombings first started in 2003, the proliferation of biochemical warfare, not to mention the unthinkable global damage that could be caused by a single nuclear weapon attack. Unitarian Universalists, and indeed many people of faith, have tried to err on the side of peace consistently over the years. And we, among others, were the first in this country to spearhead the idea of conscientious objection, the process of formally taking a moral, spiritual stand against warfare, and to legally refuse service that includes participating in violence. But there's another conflict that many of us Unitarian Universalists feel, one I certainly have struggled with that is a little harder, perhaps, to reconcile. It's what my friend David Pyle says. It's the most common question he gets. How can one serve in the military and still be a Unitarian Universalist? Well, I remember well the years immediately following the questionable election of George W. Bush and the subsequent devastation of September 11th. I was living in Boston at the time, lost one close friend and one business associate in the attacks, and was temporarily heartened by the vigils and the sense of community felt throughout Boston and this entire country immediately following the disaster. But soon I became deeply troubled by not only the violence of the world, but the vengeful rhetoric that was increasingly permeating the public discourse. Calls for war in Afghanistan were loud and seemingly justified by what we were learning about the hijackers and their network of operations. 
But soon that unwinnable conflict was not enough. We had to go after Iraq too, despite a seeming lack of connection between them and the events of September 11th. Now, this is not to say in retrospect that Saddam Hussein was a particularly good guy. He was not. Though, the US government did pay for many of his weapons when we saw him as an ally of ours in our 1980s conflict with Iran. But regardless, like many of us, I watched in horror as the executive branch steamrolled the Congress into essentially writing a blank check for war. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld's famous quote about the slam dunk case for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq would sicken my stomach then as it sickens my stomach now. So as a young 20-something UU, I organized, I advocated, I marched. My business partner and I ran the online work for the American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers, helping drive and promote the Win Without War campaign. I was sure that we would make the right decision as a nation. I was sure that we wouldn't scoff at our world partners who all seemed to condemn the proposed war in Iraq. I wrote vehement anti-war songs with titles like Headed for Disaster and Indecision, railing against the Bush administration and the hawks that seemed to be all but concluding that war with Iraq was inevitable. I attended that final march in Boston the night before the bombs were scheduled to start falling, joined by tens upon tens of thousands of people through the narrow city streets, singing, chanting, singing as loudly as we possibly could that there should be no war. But of course, there there was a war. The decision had been made. The powers that could have stopped it gave away their say. And I and many of us watched in dismay as the carnage unfolded before our eyes. And soon, despite Dick Cheney's insistence that the insurgency was in its last throes and a flak-jacketed president standing beneath a banner that read, Mission Accomplished, it was clear that this was not a war that was meant to be won quickly, or even at all. My heart dismayed and I felt powerless. I felt like so many of my former generation must have felt when Nixon was reelected in 1972, or when Saigon fell three years later with so many American casualties and no answer to the question, why? Within a couple of years of the beginning of the Iraq War, I was in seminary, looking to make the world a better place through chaplaincy and social advocacy and ministry. I naively assumed that all my fellow seminarians would be as anti-war as I was, so I was stunned to realize that two of my new classmates were active military personnel, pursuing the same Master of Divinity degree I was in order to become military chaplains. 
Shannon Holland had been a Chinook helicopter pilot. It's the big, big, big double rotor uh, helicopters that do medical evacuations. Been a Chinook helicopter pilot and a captain in the Air Force who had endured two tours of duty, one each in Afghanistan and Iraq. David Pyle, from whom we heard earlier, is a former Army Ranger who led a paratrooper drop in Bosnia, among other campaigns. And I, too, asked them the famous question, how can you serve in the military and still call yourself a Unitarian Universalist? Now, both had similar stories about becoming connected to congregations in our movement through the suggestion and counsel of military chaplains. They had each had spiritual awakenings during their time in combat, seeing firsthand the physical, moral, and religious implications of warfare. Though both older and both officers, they identified with those scared 18-year-old recruits who had no idea what they were in for, and those of their comrades who had fallen to psychological and physical injuries, and worse, along the way. I was dumbfounded to come to understand their genuine loathing of violence and their complete commitment to serving their military siblings in whatever way they could. I personally was changed by their friendship and their love. So how can one serve in the military and be a Unitarian Universalist? Well, as David says, it's all about the love. Love of the individuals affected by war on all sides and loathing of war itself. Love of those who put themselves in harm's way for sake of their country, regardless of the wisdom of that country in that conflict. And love of those who have returned, sometimes battered and broken, struggling to readjust to peaceful civilian life. Now, in class one day, the conversation turned to how we as Unitarian Universalists might serve better our military families, something that many of our churches fall short on. So I asked my friend David how he could possibly reconcile his own personal conflict over in our involvement in Iraq with his duty to follow orders and be part of the war effort. Now, he had previously acknowledged to me privately that he did not agree with the motivation or process by which the Iraq war was started or pursued. But I will never forget what he said in response. He said that all the military ever wants is to be led wisely. All the military ever wants is to be led wisely. He said that though each military person has the responsibility to follow the orders of those who outrank them, we, the people of the United States, outrank rank everybody. Therefore, he charged me to educate and mobilize the polis, the voters, the citizens. Let our people instruct our leaders on the wars that are necessary and not the other way around. 
Let our people determine the course of our military and let our people ensure that the military never be placed in harm's way for a battle that is unjust or simply not worth fighting. Do not let us fight an unjust war, he told me. That is the responsibility of every American, hawk, dove, militant, and pacifist alike. Do not let us fight an unjust war. Which, of course, begs the question, when, if ever, is a war just? As Unitarian Universalists, this is a very difficult question to answer, but I have a few suggestions as to where we might we might start. The 13th century Christian theologian St. Thomas Aquinas uh, was adding to earlier work by prior Christian writer Augustine of Hippo, and he established three conditions necessary for declaring any war a just war. First, just war must be waged by a properly instituted authority, such as a state. Second, a war must occur for a good and just purpose rather than for self-gain or as an exercise of power. So, in this sense, in the nation's best interest is not a valid justification for war. War may only happen for the sake of restoring some good that has been denied, such as lost territory, lost goods, lost rights, and third, peace must be a central motive, even in the midst of violence. An authority must fight for the just reasons it has expressly claimed for declaring war in the first place. And soldiers must also fight for this intention. And peace has to be the ultimate goal. Now, it's important to note that the state has the only power to declare war and that the government itself must be first and foremost for the benefit of its citizens before any war it wages might be deemed just. So you have to have a good government that is working for the people for any military action to be even considered legitimate. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, peace and not continued violence must be the end goal. Now, Dr. King gives us some insight as well when he makes the distinction between just and unjust laws. Dr. King says that any law that uplifts the human personality is just. Any law which doesn't is unjust. Now, I would like to suggest that the same test works for just and unjust wars. Any war or military conflict that uplifts the human personality is just. Any that doesn't, isn't. So for example, the Civil War, though fought arguably over many things, was a direct result of the increasingly divisive culture of slavery in the American South. In this sense, it was a war of liberation whose ultimate result was the ending of the barbaric practice of slavery. And by either Dr. King's or St. Aquinas's measure, the Civil War, at least from the northern perspective, was just. So too would World War II be favorably evaluated, potentially, as it came as a response to the horrors of the Holocaust and the dominating oppression of the Nazi party. 
But on the other side, wars like Vietnam and the Second Iraq War would not perhaps fare so well in either of the moral tests. As our nation's perceived political and economic self-interest and not the righting of wrongs were the major motivating factors for both. And here is where the rest of us come in. Those of us who are not or no longer in service to our nation's military, but remain invested in the actions of our country and the care of those who serve and have served. We have a moral, religious, and civic responsibility to inform our leaders so that they do not lead our military into unjust conflicts, while at the same time advocating for and caring for those who return from battle. We know that though there are times when war may be considered just, these are the exception and not the rule, and that we need be especially skeptical of our leaders who advocate for war over diplomacy or rush the decision before all parties can weigh in or both. And that is our sacred duty, too. Despite the seemingly ubiquitous presence of violence in our world, to never stop the pursuit of love, justice, and peace in both our individual and collective actions. If we can do so, then we are truly honoring all our people. Our military, our politicians, our civilians, and our neighbors, and truly celebrating Memorial Day. So go ever in love, ever pursuing peace. Happy Memorial Day, everyone. May it be so. Blessed be and amen. I would now invite the congregation to rise and body your spirit. I would like us to close this morning by singing the song I wrote the evening after I marched in Boston as I watched the night vision footage of the initial bombings in Iraq. After years of failed anti-war songs, I set my mind to creating a pro-peace song. So this is Let the Peace Begin. <clears throat> Rise and body or spirit. <clears throat> the part that everybody sings is just let the peace begin. We do it over and over and over again. <clears throat> 